0: Hello everyone and welcome to Educate Me, a podcast all about stories of surviving and thriving in graduate school. I'm your host Britt and this week my guest is Julia. Julia, can you go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure.
1: Hi Britt, I'm Julia Imanoff. I'm a perinatal nurse specialist, an Eyes High doctoral scholar. I'm a mother, a researcher, (laughs) kind of a lot of hats that I'm wearing all in one. So tell me about your research. Um, My research is really focusing around parent-child interactions and the family experience of psychological birth trauma. And so I really want to explore not just from the mother, the birth mother's perspective of psychological trauma, but how that trauma can affect the relationships with her child or her partner. So what kind of psychological trauma are you talking about? So psychological trauma, um, as opposed to purely physical trauma, may be... um, something that's a potential life threat or perceived life threat. And so birth in and of itself is technically a life threatening experience. Um, As historically, we know many women and even infants did have quite high mortality rates um, a long time ago, but now it's been seen as relatively safe in third world countries, um, or sorry, in first world countries. And so I think that the perception of safety has kind of It's intermittent some people still see it as a life-threatening uh situation and can feel it in a very real way that has psychological ramifications postpartum Um, and some people still don't feel that it's a high-risk situation and so it the women who do perceive it as life-threatening it can be really traumatic where they will have these flashbacks they will be hyper vigilant or even neglectful of their infant depending on how those symptoms progress Mm -hmm. Um, but psychological trauma in like a post-traumatic stress disorder definition really is the longevity of those symptoms too and so you'd want to see them um occurring for more than four weeks
0: duration that's really interesting actually it reminds me of like when i was a lot younger and you first learn in school about mother mortality rates and infant mortality rates and I remember when I was younger being terrified and always thinking that like, nope, I'm just gonna adopt. Like I'm not doing that. And so like that's what it's really interesting to me. Do you see like there's particular factors that would result in in psychological trauma or or like risk factors that you could identify beforehand? Um,
1: some of the research has shown that there are some commonalities. Um, and previous trauma being probably the highest or Mm -hmm. previous mental health conditions. Because if you're already set off in like an anxious state and you're already on high alert, you're more perceptive to your environment and can interpret it in a traumatic Mm -hmm. way. Um, So I I think those are the biggest ones that you'd wanna be able to keep an eye out for. But even in situations that I would perceive as a nurse, a very low risk, simple delivery with minimal to no complications, I've asked the mom previously, like, so tell me about your your previous birth. And they will reiterate this horrific story about how them or their infant almost died. And I'm flipping through the charts thinking there's nothing in here that indicated that. And it might have been something as simple as, you know, the blood pressure dropped after having an epidural. And so there was some interventions that needed to be done to make sure the blood pressure came back up. Or maybe a severe postpartum hemorrhage, but it was managed and it was okay. And so those are some things that, as nurses, we think are very common, and we respond to them very quickly and proactively, and we can, with the physician teams, can get things under control very easily. But to a woman who that might be their only birth or their first birth, that can be very traumatic.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So there might be some things that there's no risk factors for, it just might be a situation that came up. And I find it really interesting that disconnect between the healthcare providers perception of what may or may not be traumatic and the women's perceptions, because I think we have this checklist of risk factors in our heads that we might be screening for and be on high alert for, but at the same time, we don't see the experiences that actually unfold in birth as potentially traumatic because we're so used to them.
0: Yeah, it makes me think there's other research uh, also happening at the University of Calgary around um, children's experiences of pain and how parent perceptions and experiences project onto the child. And so I was curious, do you, or I don't know if you've looked into it at all, but partner experiences as well, like does that influence like, I mean, my dad reminds me on a like I don't know why it comes up on a regular basis but maybe it's when he's feeling nostalgic but I I'm uh, frequently reminded that they had to bring up the large forceps at my birth and how that was uh, a little uh, a little scary for my parents and things like that so what about like partner's perceptions does that kind of imprint on the mother as well yeah, I, I, I'm really curious about
1: partners' um, perceptions of birth, depending on how involved they were. Um, right now, I'm focusing purely on the mother's psychological trauma, but I'm also interviewing the partners as well to see if mm-hmm. there's anything there as well. So even if the mother is imprinting on the partner.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: But there has been research in like the lit reviews that I've been looking at that isolates like the partner's perception of birth trauma especially in emergency C-sections when the mother goes under general NSEC and the partner Mm -hmm. is kind of whisked away and doesn't get to be in the operating room and doesn't know kind of what's happening. Is their partner okay? Is their baby okay? And there's this really acute sense of fear and uncertainty. Um, And so there's a lot coming out now about that partner perspective, specifically in those type of situations. There's also been a lot um, coming out about healthcare providers like secondary trauma to witnessing traumatic births. Um, So I think like in this topic, there's a lot of different perspectives that you can take and pull apart. And I would love to, you know, do more and more and more research on this and take on those different perspectives. I know for my current study, I'm trying to keep it focused so I actually Uh can get it done.
0: Yeah, scope creep.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, scope creep is a real problem with uh, with research. And I remember at my master's defense, I kept getting asked these questions. I'm like, "Well, that's outside the scope of my research." However, the literature says, uh, and really having to yeah remind yourself to bring it back down. And and the idea too that a PhD is in the end all be all. Like this isn't the only research you're ever going to do. And eventually, you might get to ask and answer to some of those other questions too. Absolutely. Uh, so, speaking of being in a PhD program, what would you say has been your biggest challenge so far? I know you mentioned being a mother and, and a nurse and, and working, and I know you're also an entrepreneur. So, all these things going on in your life.
1: Yeah, I think the biggest um, challenge for me has been the pandemic, and I feel like that's probably true for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and when March hit, I was just finishing up my coursework, which ended in May. Um, but I also became the full-time care provider for my two small children. And my husband working full-time and still teaching full-time, it, it was still my responsibility to be in the house with the kids while I'm still taking classes and writing papers. And so juggling all of that became a real challenge. Um, and I recognized, too, the, the stress of my children with this unsettling experience. And all of a sudden, their world got flipped upside down where their routine was totally, you know, up in the air, And so I really wanted to focus on normalizing this for them and making it uh, an enjoyable experience for them. And so my PhD work really did take a backseat for a while. And so my hope was really to like, you know, finish my coursework, get my proposal all in, defend by the fall. It's going to be kind of in and out. I want to get this done. And I was Mm -hmm. full of gusto. And when that pandemic hit, it really shifted my my values and my priorities to really center around my family and supporting other families that were also struggling. So that's when our, um, my co-founder Erin Lee and I started Colo Families to really support new and expecting parents. Um, And we're starting to kind of look at offering free nurse counseling sessions because we're seeing mental health challenges in new and expecting parents at such a drastic rate in the pandemic. And I know for myself, it was quite a challenge to try and juggle all these things. And only since September when my kids started to get back into a routine and go to preschool and day home that I've even had some sort of semblance of routine and normalcy again, when I'm starting to look at my papers and my lit reviews and getting back into it. But my fall defense timeline definitely got, my candidacy timeline got derailed completely. And so now I've had to reevaluate and rejuggle this, this crazy dynamic that's just shifting all of the balls in the air all the time.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm yeah I think I mean I'm very much that way too where I had everything okay I'm going to uh, get my data so when in March I was in the middle of data collection I'm gonna get my data and then I'm gonna write and I'm gonna finish and I, I had initially a timeline of like when I'd finish and what activities I'd be doing and then the pandemic hits and you have to uh, pivot <laughs> there's that meme from friends where they're taking the couch up the stairs and I think that's like the meme of 2020 yeah. Um exactly and then this idea that uh like good and bad things have happened and come up unexpectedly and how do you pivot in your own head to stop planning and stop trying to make things happen on on a timeline that that fits you but doesn't necessarily fit everything else that's going on in the world
1: Mm -hmm. and i think there's like you said there's kind of like the silver lining and the benefits that come with that too and i think being a parent during the pandemic has also given me a different perspective and lens to lend to my research so when i go and do participant interviews Mm. it's not just with families experiencing birth trauma but it's families experiencing birth trauma in a pandemic yeah and that adds a different layer to the research question as well and so i think having this time to understand and appreciate the struggle and the real isolation from family and supports when you need it most and what that looks like and i can only imagine with new parents that's even more so. Um, but I think it's really added a benefit, um, to my research as well. That's given me a time to pause and reflect of how I will approach this a bit differently because of it.
0: Yeah. That like, that's such a good point is that, I mean, becoming a new parent is scary in and of itself. Uh, and then you add on the fact that you're doing it in a pandemic and hospitals, like we know there's outbreaks in hospitals and, and, um, uh, hospitals aren't always that safe, clean place. And then you add on the fact that your family might not be able to come help you. And uh, even if you live far away, often family will travel to support, but they might not be able to do that anymore. That's really interesting. So um, like, how have you managed to like readjust and get back into a routine and get back into like some semblance of, of a new normal?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think a lot of grad students would probably be in the same boat, whether you have kids that you're juggling as well, or whether it's just your other roles and responsibilities in life, because grad students are busy people. They try and take on the world, which is great. But how do you do that? And how do you manage all those things? Um, And so I think once I was able to really invest in my family and make sure my kids were okay in this, and I was able to kind of you know, put some distance between us again, so I could focus on my research. Um, I still try and make sure that I prioritize my time with my family. So when my kids are home, I don't do any work and I make sure that I'm with Mm. them and only them. But then that means I have to be extra on point and effective when they're not here. Mm -hmm. And so I do have a journal that I like make a plan for the next day So that the night before I know exactly what I'm going to be doing, what I'm going to be working on with some like flex time, but a rough schedule of like objectives to kind of hit. And I try not to make my to-do list like 10 or 15 items long, which they easily could be, but not realistic to get done in a day. So I try and keep it to the top three. So what are my top three things that I need to get done today? Um, And that way I usually get those three things done and I can even move down the list if I want to. Mm -hmm. But at least that way my expectation is really realistic and achievable. And then at the end of the day, I will also reflect on what went well that day, what challenges did, what challenges came up that I still need to work on and tweak. Um, So I find for myself, the pattern that I've noticed in this reflective agenda setting has been that I will always do the quick and easy tasks first. And I don't dig into like (laughs) hard or lengthy tasks. So I really have to push myself that you know, like my proposal has been on my to-do list since April and it's not nearly as close to being done as it needs to be. I am still working on my lit reviews, but I find even those, like, I'm happy to read other people's articles and critique them, but writing myself is that thing that I will always put off. Yeah. And to maybe get that scheduled time to do the hard things that I know I put off is really mm-hmm. becoming more of the priority. Um, so I think those are some of the strategies, making time, setting your schedule, but also recognizing the patterns in your behavior so that you can kind of call yourself out on the things that you're skipping or not doing as much as you should be.
0: Yeah. It makes me think of a few things you say there. So yeah, I've been trying to do the scheduling piece um, and the, the planning out of like, what do I need to do today? I'm not quite at the, what I need to do tomorrow yet, but that's a really good idea. But then you brought this idea, basically the idea of like eating the frog. So this idea that you should start with the hardest things first, because you're more likely to put them off. And once you've eaten the frog or done the hard thing, then the other things come really easily. But then there's this other camp of uh, productivity that says that, well, you warm up with the tasks because it kind of feels good to get a couple things ticked off and you feel productive. And then that spurs more productivity. Um, and so, which camp do you think you fall into? <laughs>
1: Uh, by default, I think I'm in the productivity camp. I love yeah. checking things up. I don't know if I have a white beside me with like a ton of tick boxes because I feel mm. so good when I can check that off. And that is my default like MO. It's like I need to be as productive as possible. So what I actually have is I have like my productivity time and then I would have my like challenging task time. Mm. So during the day, I know that I am like, I get energized by feeling like I'm really accomplished and doing lots of things. So during my like nine to five hours, I guess you could say, it's more like 10 to four most days. (laughs) Um, it's my productivity mode, but then after my kids go to bed, I usually do like a workout to kind of get me re-energized and then I will write and do like the hard stuff right before bed. And I'll usually spend Mm. two hours at night just focusing, sorry, just focusing on writing because then I know like there's no expectations for me to be productive. There's no meetings. Like no one's going to interrupt me. I'm not going to get emails. You just sit and write whatever you can. Yeah. And so I think there has to be a balance of both in a day. I don't think you can, I don't think you can achieve just one or the other and still get what you need done.
0: I, yeah, I would agree with that completely. And so my writing time, I usually try to get at least an hour in the morning before meetings and all that start because uh, I'm definitely more with it in the morning. <laughs> the evenings are not my best time. Um, and so I might do emails or things actually even in the evening because I'm not I'm not on the as on the ball. Um, but yeah, like thinking about like doing that self-reflection and thinking about when is the best time for me to do different things and to like when I'm in the, when am I most likely to be in that state of flow or, um, yeah, the other thing I'm, I'm trying and working on is having a couple things on the go. So like you said, like the top three things I need to get done today, but allowing myself not to work in linearity as much. So one thing I tend to fall into is like, you no, know, I have to get this one thing done before I can even think about anything else. Um, but then when I get stuck, I just get stuck. And then that's when I get distracted by like going on Twitter and Facebook and like all these things that aren't <laughs> useful. So instead I'm allowing myself to be like, oh, I've hit a block. Okay, I'm going to go do this other thing that requires something else completely me to think about. And then I can come back to to this thing later. So um, I'm trying that out. It seems to be working a little bit, but um, like what I think about in my master's when I was most productive, that's what I was doing as I was just constantly all day, like hit a block. Okay, I'm at, or I'm bored with this thing. Usually that's what my block is. I'm like, I'm bored with what I'm working on. Yep. And that ability to then switch and flip to something else. So...
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And that's, I find I do my, that in my work as well. And often my work is very different. So like between um, like wearing my nursing hat and thinking about clinical situations or wearing my PhD hat and thinking about research or wearing my entrepreneur hat where I'm more like marketing and design and like a total different side of my brain. I've flexed in a long time, but usually my three tasks are from different camps of my work um and that really does help because then I'm starting to use my brain in a different way and all of a sudden this creative part might come into my research and inform a different thing that I didn't think about or mm-hmm. so it's really neat to kind of see how just changing how you're using your brain can sometimes get you past those those roadblocks
0: mm-hmm. and then you don't waste the time sitting there being like oh like I need to get going and why can't I do this thing and just using your energy then in a different way that allows you to actually still move forward
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I also really like um, how you mentioned like knowing when you're kind of in your flow zone. And mm-hmm. I think it was you that actually sent me um, a reflective piece on like how to find your tiger time, which is like, yeah, when you're yeah. Flowing. yeah. And uh, I've actually been using that quite a bit because traditionally I'm a morning person and I would always write when I did my master's, I wrote from like six to 8am. That was like my peak time. Um, but now that I have kids, that time really doesn't <laughs> doesn't work for writing so I have to help them get ready and get casting yeah. at the door and so I don't get them to my computer for like nine or ten which is far beyond my flow time and so I've had to figure out ways to like artificially stimulate that flow mm. at night which I'm traditionally yeah not a night person at all and Usually I have to edit a lot of what I write at night because it's, it's not where it needs to be, but at least I get something on paper. Yeah, you
0: get that first draft out or at least those first thoughts, which like staring mm-hmm. at a blank screen is, is one of the hardest pieces.
1: Right. So I think it's really important for people who are juggling a lot too, to keep in mind that just because your peak time might be what you think is a kind of set in stone, there's ways to kind of stimulate it in different ways. Um, so mm-hmm. you trying to be creative with how to get that flow going to stimulate that creativity when you need it the most.
0: Mm-hmm. and yeah and it, it like one of the ways that you do that it sounds like is is by exercising as well so that you're kind of uh stimulating a, a new start like here's a clear break and a fresh start and then and then work um like I know people now are, are uh, talking about on Twitter the uh the like fake commute um yeah to actually like go for a 15-minute walk or bike ride or whatever uh, at the beginning of the day and the end of the day to, to simulate what a commute would be like because yeah like how many times have we been driving home and had a brilliant thought or been like oh yeah that's where I need to go next in, in what I'm working on and so um, we don't get that when like literally my den space is just like next to the bedroom like there's no commute right it's like two seconds which at first I thought was great I can get to my work quicker but what am I losing by not doing that exercise or that walk or whatnot so Mm -hmm. it's still dark out when I'm getting started though so I don't know how much I want to go for a walk but uh, I'm thinking about that's probably something I should incorporate
1: (laughs) (laughs) even if it's a short walk
0: yeah. Yeah. Luckily it's not too cold here, but it's, uh, it can be pretty rainy, but it's, it's the darkness. I not like walk in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. That's true.
1: We have a dog as well. So like it, either my husband or myself will have to either like walk the dog or get the kids ready and commute with them. So it still feels mm. like commute one way or another. So someone's got to walk the dog and the other one takes the kids. And so either way, we always end up getting out in the morning, which is really mm-hmm. nice. So again, stimulate that, that kind of commute and break in your day
0: yeah that's I think and, and getting out is really good as well. Getting I mean, out of your house. I realized last week, I think it was on, uh, yeah, it was last week, I had left the house on Monday and I actually hadn't left the house again until Friday. And I was like, oh, this is not good. <laughs> like I'd still I'd still exercise, but I exercised in my living room. Oh my I was God. still like cooking and eating fine, but it was like, no, I have not been outside. And so I'm really working this week on making sure I get outside, uh, aiming for midday when it's actually kind of sunny out, um, but actually getting outside at least once a day.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've actually had a few friends who are really um, strong advocates for the walking meeting. Yeah. Like we're used to Zoom so much now and like, I love the face to face when you can have it. But my one friend will always be like, no, I'd rather call you on the phone because then I can take it as a walking meeting.
0: Mm-hmm. Like,
1: oh, that's a great idea. Well, if you're walking, I'm going to walk too. <laughs>
0: I yeah, and and you know what I think people are maybe hesitant to ask for that because I remember yeah when I was um, president of the GSA there was one uh, senior leadership member who would always be like you know what let's do a walking meeting, and and it was it was great because I think for her as well that was the only time she got out of the office except for walking between meetings but being able to take walking meetings but I think people think we have to we still have to be face to face we still have to have have as much visual contact as possible. But I imagine if someone suggested, you know what, can we do a phone call instead so that we can go for a walk or whatnot, then um, I imagine many people would take it out, take you up on it. It's just being the one who suggests it.
1: <laughs> yeah. At first, like I don't usually phone people. I'm not like a phone call person. Yeah. I'll always like text or email and now more recently Zoom. But um, But even then, I don't usually use Zoom for like social connections. I'll just text. It just seems easier and quicker and less imposing on people's time but when my one friend started always phoning it's kind of been like this weird like oh we can do that I totally forgot that you can just pick up a phone mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like a lost skill of just talking on the phone without a computer in front of you
0: it's true it's funny my family's actually pretty good at that um like they'll just call and then if you don't pick up they're like well you didn't pick up like you're busy it's fine um but they've all, always been pretty good at that and then my my sister will actually do where she will call like when she's driving home uh after work or picking up the kids from daycare and so you hear the kids cry in the background because they're driving and like what else can you do um but uh, that idea of just just call like there's if they don't pick up that's fine but and then your scheduled meetings—if you don't have to share documents or or look at something together on the computer—yeah, why not turn it into a walking meeting? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that speaks to like the flexibility that we need to have now. So, like talking about the flexibility in our research plans, but also talk about like our flexibility in how we work and our flexibility in when we work and where. Um, but I guess like where I'm strugg- where I struggle with now is flexibility with boundaries. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So um, there's a joke that I think, I don't know how, how funny it is, but this idea that like academia is great because you can work whenever you want or being a grad student is great because you can work whenever you want. But that actually just means you work all the time. And so, yeah, how do we how do we reap the benefits of flexibility, but also create boundaries? So for myself as well, like I try to keep like I have three hats as well, I guess right now. So I'm teaching, doing PhD and then working and I try to keep them in buckets. So I try to work Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I try to do the student thing Tuesday, Thursday. Doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes things overflow, but then I try to like take an hour there and an hour here and whatnot. But is that more harmful than just going with the flow and being flexible and being like, what do I want to work on right now? I'm not sure.
1: That's a great, I think that's a great question. I think there's a few things to consider in that too, is more of like the accountability of the hours, especially like when there's a work and teaching element to it. Cause those actually have certain hours and expectations that are clearly yeah. outlined that you have to do. Um, and so you have to record it and keep it tracked somewhere. So mm-hmm. I think that's a bit of a challenge when you're trying to go with the flow and how do you account for when you're multitasking and what does that look like? Mm-hmm. So having some kind of blocked time for those type of roles might be more effective i know for me um i tr- i tend not to track as much as i probably should be especially being an entrepreneur i feel like so much of my time is like volunteering in my startup because you don't like until you really are an employee it's just it's all <laughs> it's all your time um so i don't really feel like i separate um my tasks very well other than the times that i'm like actually blocked off to be with patients or to be with my team then I can track those hours a bit easier. But I find I love just going with the flow. Um, I think there is a very, sorry, I think there is a very real challenge too with um, that work seeping into everything you do. So Mm -hmm. I know for myself, I love multitasking and being able to work on everything all at the same time. But at the same time, I want to make sure that I have clear boundaries of when I'm stopping or when I'm starting. like my time with my family is really important so I never do anything before 9 a.m so that I have the whole morning and I can really enjoy being with my kids and like all of the mess and craziness that comes with mornings Mm -hmm. with kids whether it's you know we wake up and we have a quick breakfast of cereal or like this morning my son's like I want waffles I'm like oh god okay it's 6 30 do we have time for waffles sure we have time for waffles let's make waffles and being able to really enjoy that and not have to rush to be somewhere so that's kind of nice um and then in the evenings too once I pick them up I make sure I have no appointments between like 4 p.m or 8 p.m as much as possible so that I can really enjoy that full evening with them
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so I think I it does seep into all the other hours around that but when my kids are home and awake there's nothing else that takes priority
0: Mm -hmm. I really like that because and I think that's one thing I fall into is always, well, I got to get back to the computer. I got to get, get to this and, and spending that family, quality family time when your mind is half on my next meeting. Whereas if you know, well, I start at nine every day and that's just whatever. I don't even have to think about what I'm working on when I get to the computer. I know it's, it's, it's a nine o'clock start or whatever start. I like that idea.
1: Yeah. And I think. I think sometimes it's easier as parents to kind of make that set because your kind your kids often demand your attention. So there's not a lot <laughs> of flexibility. You kind of have to be in that moment and have that quality connection with them. You know, sometimes my son will literally like move my face and be like, no, mommy, look in my eyes. Like, so they really want your attention. But I think it's really important for people who maybe don't have kids that are, are demanding and they have different family structures or things that look a bit different in their life in terms of their relationships, but to still prioritize that quality connections with themselves or with others and what that looks like because that really is what's going to fuel your soul mm-hmm. it's not going to be your research <laughs> it's not going to be you know sitting on the computer and typing that last paper and hitting submit it might feel good in the moment but really the quality human connections that you have in your life are what's going to sustain you mm-hmm. so that's what we also need to make time for and invest in
0: yeah that's such a good point and I think um That's also really hard right now. So for those who are uh, in a smaller family or um, living on their own, any suggestions of how we can fuel human connection still, um, even when we have to be physically apart?
1: Yeah, I actually um, was part of a virtual TED Talk Calgary event recently. Mm -hmm. And this gentleman presented about Um, skill sets for sparking human connections. And he did this before COVID, but I think he's kind of skyrocketed and become ever more popular now with this pandemic and everyone's more distant. So it's even more challenging to spark those authentic human connections. Mm. And his whole premise is around asking deep questions, which I think is phenomenal because it seems so simple and easy to do, yet also kind of challenging and terrifying. Mm -hmm. But I think I would encourage people to, to go there because there's so many times that we stick to superficial conversations, even before COVID. Hey, how are you? How's the weather? Yeah. And you kind of keep it very superficial. And you leave the conversation before you've even really gotten to know that person or, or what's going on in their life. But asking deeper questions, or even asking the same questions, but in a deeper way, like, how are you actually doing? Like, what's up with you in your life and pausing to listen? Mm. That really will help foster those, those human connections. Um, I recently did a talk on this actually for the Leader in All of Us Conference um, with the Faculty of Nursing yeah. at New Calgary. And the three skill sets I kind of based it on was asking deep questions is kind of the first step, holding space for each other. So you actually have to stick around long enough yeah. to hear the response <laughs> and actually pay attention to what the person's saying. Um, but then also this um, onus to also respond with care and empathy so that you can listen to the other person, but also have this response that's not just going to be like, oh, that's nice when they just told you like things are not great.
0: Like, yeah. You really want
1: to make sure you hear them. That must be really hard for you. I'm so sorry you're going through this or like, how can I help or whatever the response is, but making sure it's still empathetic and kind of connecting. And I think we all have this ethical imperative to have that caring response to each other now more than ever.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think we, I think we all want to have that caring, empathetic response. But I think that second piece of holding time and space for people is so important because how many times back back in the old days when we would be passing each other in the hallway and it's, oh, hey, how's it going? Oh, good, good. OK, bye. And you're literally just passing ships in the night. Um, whereas then when someone actually stopped and was like, well, how are you and and where are you out with things and what's going on? And even those hallway conversations felt so important and so powerful. And that's one thing I hear from a lot of grad students is that we don't have those hallway conversations anymore. Like I, I remember days when I'd be there our offices in education weren't used all that well. But um <laughs> there was someone I knew in the office next to me and I'd always just kind of pop my head in as I was leaving or coming in to see like, are they there? And then more like if they were there, we would stop and chat and I'd be like, oh my gosh, it's been two hours like <laughs> I really need to go um but holding that time and space like those were some really powerful conversations but now when we don't have those incidental running into each other and this is one thing I hear like graduate students are really missing they're no longer running into the professor they had last semester and able to ask about something or or whatnot and how do we recreate those coincidental conversations
1: I think that's a great question. I know that in nursing, we're feeling the, ex- the exact same thing where we've really been uh, missing those, like even in our breaks in class, we'd like go and get a coffee or something yeah. and chat about our research together and someone would be like, oh, have you thought about it from this perspective? And, like your mind would just be blown or you get to know people in a really real and genuine way. And I'm so thankful for that now that we still have those connections, even though we're so distanced and now preparing for candidacy, it's a very isolating experience. So still having something to hang on to. Has been really great but when you can't recreate that what do you do and i think part of it's being brave enough to ask yeah. and i think a lot of the professors or even fellow grad students would be happy to sit down for a virtual coffee or a walking meeting on the phone um, to reconnect and chat i know when i talked to my supervisor that i was really struggling um, especially with writing and setting time, he set up time and space for me that we could connect um, and just sit on Zoom together and write. And we've just mm-hmm. be doing like a writing group, essentially just a bit of an accountability piece. He's like, I've got a lot of writing that I need to do as well that I don't want to do. But it was me being vulnerable to be like, I'm struggling and I think I need more like connection. Mm-hmm. or I need more something. And he was able to facilitate that. And it was like, I got so much more done than I ever thought I would be able to in, like in the four weeks that we had when we did this. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think asking would be the first step. Asking of people's time and the worst thing they can do is say no and that's fine. You just keep asking different people. Um, I also think there's different strategies for like making sure those connections are worth your while. So I find like phone calls actually help you hold time and space. And listen to each other in a more authentic way than on zoom because on zoom Mm -hmm. we're mostly listening to what we sound like or looking at our own photos to see like (laughs) how do i look and so i find like turning off your self-view in zoom is really helpful or even just again relying more on the phone because you're really focusing on the words that they're saying and not so much on the face to face Mm -hmm. there's a few different strategies i think people can take but it's (laughs) i don't think either of them are very easy to do
0: yeah yeah, it's so true. But I think, yeah, like, just as much as you might take that initiative to say hello in the hallway or uh, pop into someone's office, it's that same initiative, but it's just it's just a bit different. Um, I keep looking, and I haven't looked too hard, but I'm looking for some sort of chat software where you can see who's in the room before you join, or you could just like hang out to see if someone joins you so because it's this idea of like the water cooler at work right like so in the grad students association office we have very much this like open pit kind of in the middle but and the water cooler is like literally right in the middle and so one person goes to get water and you can see that they've gone to get water so you're like oh hi and you start a conversation and then before you know it, like everybody's out of the water cooler having having a good 20 20 30 minute conversation that sure is distracting you should probably go back to work but it's really fulfilling in a lot of other ways. So I keep I keep dreaming of this, this water cooler software where you can have it, you where you're like, oh, I'm gonna take a quick coffee break. You pop into this chat software, and then other people see that you're there and then they come too. Cause I think there's there's an idea of like, there's always gonna be one person who instigates. And sure, as soon as that one person instigates, then others will follow. I uh, love that. I don't, and I
1: don't know if you need necessarily a particular software, but I would even say like, if you have a group of people that you kind of socialize with on a regular basis or who want to sign up for the water cooler, you could just have like an email listserv that you just like email them the Zoom link when you're ever at the water cooler Mm. and kind of pop in if they want to. And if they're still busy doing work, they'll just ignore the email and
0: keep working. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Or I'm like, I'm on like five different Slack channels (laughs) for, Slack. (laughs) they're all they're all like uh i think two out of three or two out of five are like grad student writing groups and then others are different things but could do the same thing where you just have a like a water cooler channel where you just pop something in and say hey i'm here if anyone wants to take a coffee break with me i like that i'm just gonna do that i'm gonna take the initiative and just do that
1: It, and I think you should coin it the water cooler because it's brilliant I'm going to
0: I'm going to do it like right after this conversation I'm going to create <laughs> a water cooler for the grad college because I think I'm still an admin on the slack channel actually so you do not let me know and I'll do it <laughs> <laughs> um I really like that I really like that because I've been struggling with like how do we create that incidental um connection that isn't I have a question or have a reason to reach out to you it's just I want and it It's almost like I just want to talk to someone, like I'll talk to anyone. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And sometimes it could just be like, I just need to talk out loud. Are you willing to listen? Yeah. It could just be as simple as that so that there's no like expectations of the other person per se. You don't necessarily need their feedback or their perspective. It'd be great if you had it, but you don't also want to put the other person out like I need something from you.
0: Just yeah, like, exactly. just made
1: a point of connection and just to talk about with somebody, will you be there with me?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think that that's one of the barriers is this fear of burdening others with what we have going on when we know that everybody else has so much going on as well. And to say, and then there's also the fronting that comes with being a graduate student of, I have to pretend I have it all together because otherwise I don't belong in grad school. And of course we all know that's not true. Um, But we know we all think that. So um, that, that willingness to be a little bit vulnerable and say like, Hey, I need, I need a connection or I need to think out loud or um, I need some support. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And I think every, I think every grad student needs kind of like their their hub or their home where they can feel like they can ask that of a group of students, uh, fellow mm. colleagues, whether it's in your faculty or external mm-hmm. or cross disciplines. I think you really need to kind of find your your home or your niche of your your people. Mm-hmm. That may be, I know that in, in the faculty of nursing, we recently started something called the hermeneutic hub because there's a, mm. quite a few researchers right now or grad students who are studying using hermeneutic methodology, Yeah, which has been more than we've seen it in a long time so we decided to make a club but it's been so great because you get to kind of talk about philosophy or kind of niche things about your research that you can't always talk to everybody about because sometimes they're like I don't know what you're talking about or that doesn't make sense to me
0: definitely and, with your yeah. minute eggs
1: <laughs> right? like some people are like what, are, what are, I don't even know what that word means I'm oh, sorry it's yeah. German <laughs> like <laughs> So it's really nice to have this, this hub and this hermeneutic home where like, I know I can reach out to any of them and just be like, Hey, I just need to talk this out. Or like, Mm. can you look at this? Or do you want to get together with me and like have a coffee and like read this article together? Mm -hmm. It's So nice to have people that I know I can just like kind of reach out to on the fly and whether they respond immediately or not, like everyone's really busy, totally get that. But it's nice to have that sense of home or Mm -hmm. my hub. Yeah. which is really, really cool so I would encourage any graduate student to also kind of find your people find your tribe or your hub or whatever yeah. that looks like for you.
0: What I find really interesting is that for me I have found that and I like in three places so I think I'm really lucky um, but all of them are outside of my own program and I think one of the reasons so with a graduate college at the University of Calgary that's definitely one of those places because one of them is that there's no competition there because it's so everyone's from a different discipline well I mean there is some overlap in disciplines, but uh, because we have people from the same faculties, but not in the same way of within your cohort, where there's you're all applying for SHRC and you're all applying for the same awards and you're all kind of like using each other's benchmarks to find out, am I, am I moving fast enough? Am I too slow? Or like, where am I in the process? Um, But these are people you just connect with about like the experience of graduate school and, and being, or trying to be graduate student leaders and those sorts of things. And then another one is on Twitter, I found grad write slack. And so this is a, a group that meets on slack uh, and we have daily write ins. And I've had a couple people from that group on the podcast as well. But what I really like is that it is all over the world, all different disciplines. There's uh, threads on just ranting, <laughs> there's threads on tips and tricks, there's threads on like we celebrate each other's successes. Um, but again, because it's such a diverse group, there's not that sense of competition or comparison, which is really nice. Um, and then the third one is through the American Ed Research Association. Because our conference got canceled, uh, our group, um, our grad reps, they created uh, like a, a social for us in April when we were supposed to have this conference. And then out of there, it turned into a writing group. And then out of there, it turned into a Slack channel and a weekly writing group. And it started off huge. Like I think there are probably like 50 people in this writing group to start off with. It's so, incredible. It was huge. So we would go into breakout rooms and all that sort of stuff. Um, but now it's probably about the same, like 15 people every week, uh, which is really nice. Cause you're like, like all these people that I feel I really know now, uh, and you check in every week. So sometimes I don't feel like writing, but I go to see my friends because I'm like, well, I want to see how they're doing. I want to check in with them, uh, and see what's going on for them. So and then they're like, okay, we need to write now. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'll write. <laughs> so yeah, the pressure. Gosh. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, yeah, amazingly, like I've been able to find, uh, I mean, grad college start as an in-person community, but then online communities as well. So, um, yeah, the importance of finding community. And if you can't find one, create one. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: I love that. Some- you're mentioning specifically with the lack of comparison because I think that mm-hmm. is um a, a very real phenomenon in a lot of faculties where it's constantly measuring up and like oh we were in courses together how come they're at candidacy before me how come they published like six papers already like yeah. what am I doing and all of a sudden you're like the super like imposter syndrome like I shouldn't be here like well who am I like I'm not clearly not measuring up and all of a yeah. sudden, you kind of take yourself down. So I think you're right that you need to find not just a community, but a community that you feel is encouraging and there mm-hmm. isn't that competition, even if it's not, like, if it's inadvertent and you're not intentional, <laughs> it's sometimes, like, subconsciously still there. Oh, yeah. Um, so I think it's really important to have kind of that openness and that supportive community, even yeah. when it's not intentional, but just make sure that you're you're not comparing to other people either. Yeah, you'll be far more productive when you're not always second guessing yourself or questioning whether or not you're making the cut.
0: It's so true. And yeah, I would say my, in my own program, I have, I have lots of acquaintances, but I have, I would say two close grad school friends, uh, one in the cohort ahead of me and one in my cohort. And I don't know if they compare themselves, but I certainly compare myself and it's really hard not to. Um, And I was, I was feeling so far behind and I was feeling like I just, directionless and I'm behind and all these things and then I was the first one to get a job and then I'm like okay well like clearly comparison like there's nothing to say about comparison like we're all at different stages and we're all doing different things so and then I felt bad because I feel like yeah and then I was like oh now I'm going to contribute to their imposter syndrome (laughs) so I felt really bad um I I careful how I told them about it um (laughs) but uh but yeah getting beyond that sense of competition and comparison and it's hard because in academia like I've even seen faculty members like at a meeting where like not entirely like they were collegial but it was clear that they were like rooting for the other person to fail so that they could succeed because they were both competing for the same grant and those sorts of things and it's like academia does this to us but how do we how do we overcome that yeah
1: You know, I find in nursing, I feel like we were a kind of a different breed (laughs) just because nurses in general, I find are just, um, you're so compassionate, typically typically more collegial and inclusive. Um, not to say that that comparison and that like competitive edge doesn't creep in, but I think it's at a lesser rate or maybe lesser intensity. Um, and I know like with my colleagues too, I'm sure like when we were in coursework, like I think I hit the ground running and I was so prepared and so ready to start this PhD. I like. I felt like I was just like a force to be reckoned with. And then when COVID hit and everything fell apart for me and then all of a sudden, you know, like my colleagues who are at the same point in me are now, you know, passing their candidacy well before me and I've still haven't got my stuff together. But I felt that in that whole thing, we've always been like rooting for each other Mm -hmm. and that like whoever's doing candidacy at whatever time we're like, you know, sending on encouraging texts to be like, you can do this. And if one person got a shirk, then they'd like still share what they learned even though, like, the others, including myself, were not successful, (laughs) then we'd, like, pick up and learn from them and apply again the next year, sort of thing, so, like, it was always the value add to the group, rather than, like, oh, well, I got this, and you didn't, it was, like, what can I share with you to help you along, because I was successful, or, like, how can I celebrate your success with you, yeah, regardless of where I'm at, yeah, and it's been this great, like, support network, um, even though, like, I, I still definitely have felt like oh gosh now everyone's farther ahead than I am and I'm so far behind but I also recognize that they don't have kids or like I'm juggling a few different things and maybe I've put my priorities elsewhere and life is different and that's Mm -hmm. okay and so sometimes it's that reframing internally as well so it's not it's not me it's just this is the way life is right now and that's okay Mm -hmm. I'll still do the best I can with what I've got and we'll just celebrate each other's successes along the way
0: yeah and I think like it made me think as you were saying that like a Mario Kart race not that grad school's a race but like in Mario <laughs> Kart just because you start out ahead like doesn't mean you're gonna end ahead and like just because they get to candidacy first like there's plenty of time for them to slow down <laughs> and to fall back and uh not that like I want them to have it, that to happen for them but I think recognizing that like where you are right now is not where you're gonna be as you turn the corner because that corner could either cause you to spin out and slow down, or it could cause you to pass everybody. Um, and and it's yeah, like this idea that we can actually all win and we and it's just at different at different paces. And some go faster at some parts and some go slower at some parts.
1: That's so true. I love the analogy of Mario Kart. <laughs> I'm just thinking of like, oh, those banana peels, they just seem to be everywhere right now. And I'm just spinning out. <laughs>
0: I'm probably thinking about this. I've been grading uh, B.Ed. student metaphors for teaching and learning. And so I'm just like thinking of <laughs> metaphors and they just seem to come now uh, as I am constantly thinking about metaphors. But yeah, so now it's grad school is Mario Kart. That's that's I it. love it. That
1: actually is quite fitting.
0: <laughs> Watch out for the banana peels. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I think that's a good note to end it on. Uh, as we continue to watch out for the banana peels. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a joy to chat with you, and I've really learned a lot just in this short conversation. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Educate Me. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and subscribe on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A huge thank you to our audio producer, Sean Paris. Join us again next week for more stories of surviving and thriving in graduate school. Until then, stay in school.